Welcome to the Bioinformatics CRO Podcast. I'm Grant Belgard, and joining me today is Noor Siddiqui. Noor is the founder and CEO of ORCID. She was educated at Stanford and before that was a, a Teal Fellow. So she's our second Teal Fellow on the podcast and started a company called Remedy. So Noor, welcome. Thanks so much for having me on, Grant. Yeah, thank, thanks for, so much for joining us. So we always start with, you know, what are you doing now? Tell us about ORCID. So yeah, or ORCID helps couples have healthy babies. And the way that we do that is we've developed a new type of genetic test for couples who are planning on having a child soon. So we analyze both partners' DNA and identify the disease risk that's most likely to impact their future child's health. So we look for the top diseases, things like cancer, heart disease, schizophrenia, diabetes, conditions that really matter to future parents. And unlike most genetic tests, you can actually do something about the results you get from ORCID. So one of the options that we offer is an embryo report where you can quantify the level of genetic risk in each embryo so that couples can select the healthiest embryo to implant. So like, sort of the high-level mission of ORCID is we want to give parents peace of mind and give their children a better chance at a healthy life. Is this on the basis of polygenic risk scores? Yeah, that's correct. So essentially, if you kind of look at the types of preconception genetic testing that's available today, those are carrier screens. So this, these are looking at super rare, recessive, you know, monogenic conditions. So if you look at human genetics, we have identified about 5,000 single gene diseases, but collectively, these 5,000 diseases only affect about 1% of babies that are born. So in contrast to that, sort of this, this major, really incredible advance that's happened in genomics that we're excited to sort of bring to market and bring to parents is that now we can measure genetic susceptibility for the most common conditions. So things like you know, heart disease, schizophrenia, diabetes, where you know, a single disease has sometimes double-digit prevalence in the U.S. So what we're really excited about and we think is really important to offer to parents is that we shouldn't really be discriminating based on a genetic architecture of a disease, right? So right now, there are tests that allow you to measure risk for single-gene diseases, and that, that's really positively impacted the lives of you know, the rare disease community. But what about the vast majority of the rest of us, right? So genetics impacts risk for every major disease, and now we have this newfound ability to actually measure that risk because data set sizes have now grown into the hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of individuals where we actually have enough cases, so individuals with the disease to build these polygenic risk scores where there's real predictive power behind them. So that's sort of a really major advance. And then on the other side, on the single cell sequencing side, we finally have sort of a high enough fidelity sequence off of something as small as a a small amount of DNA that's present in an embryo to actually be able to mitigate that risk. So that's exactly how ORCID's designed our two products. So we have a couple report, which just takes the saliva sample. It's an at-home, you know, patient-initiated physician-order test that allows couples to measure risk. So just quantify, you know, are we at normal or elevated risk for these, these conditions that everyone cares about? And if we are elevated, like we can actually make a plan. So instead of it just being, oh, you know, I found out some bad news about us, that it, it's actually actionable, right? You can make lifestyle changes. You can monitor your biometrics if you, if you don't want to go through IVF. But if you do want to meaningfully mitigate genetic susceptibility for your future child, you know, it's possible to go through IVF, create embryos, and we identify for you what the, the delta or relative risk reduction that you could achieve through creating embryos and uh, identifying the one that's at lowest risk. So we, we think that these are two significant scientific advances, and uh, we don't want them to just stay on the shelf like, unfortunately, a lot of technical advances do. And we think that this is a really high impact valuable um, report and information to give to, to future parents. Do you additionally use information on family history? Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, family history is really important because, you know, right now genetic testing is kind of uh, unfortunately pretty nebulous, right? So if you have sort of a really basic common question like, hey, you know, my aunt has breast cancer, is that going to affect me? 
right now the panels are, are super small, right? There's just a small number of these monogenic, you know, high impact variants that have been identified, but they don't tell the whole story. So, you know, if you wanted to go investigate that right now using existing tests, you get a really inconclusive, unsatisfying answer, which is, okay, it clearly runs in your family in the sense that, okay, we have these, we've identified multiple individuals who have the disease, but, you know, the panel that we have only looks at this very small fraction of high penetrant variants that don't tell the whole story. So that's why we're really excited about polygenic risk scores is because it captures risk across the entire genome, right? It's not like we're just looking at a small, you know, fraction and fraction of variants. We're looking at literally millions of variants, which is what collectively drives risk for these diseases. So we know that if we if we provide these polygenic risk scores, these more advanced genetic susceptibility assessments, we're going to identify a lot more people who are at higher risk that wouldn't be captured on just a simple monogenic small panel type of test. That's the type of information that I think, you know, parents deserve. I mean, why, why is it that, you know, we're only telling this really small fraction of people about elevated risk when we already know that um, individuals who are in this highest, you know, 99th, 98th percentile of a polygenic risk score are also at increased risk. So I, I also want to obviously put a disclaimer, you know, this polygenic risk scores are, are really exciting, but we can't capture 100% of disease risk. So, you know, if we, if we identify you at normal genetic risk, that, that unfortunately isn't a guarantee of a healthy life. That just means you're at average genetic risk. You know, these studies look at you know, hundreds of thousands of individuals and these scores capture a lot more variation than these panels do, but you know, they don't capture the sporadic non-genetic causes of the disease. And for these complex conditions, it's not Down syndrome where, okay, if you have this, you certainly have the condition. So we're measuring genetic susceptibility, which is an important component of, of all disease risk. But unfortunately, we cannot guarantee that a child or an individual won't get a disease simply because they're at normal risk. And that's something that we care a lot about in our reporting, because this is a more advanced type of genetic testing. It's not as simple as saying yes or no, you have this variant. It's about measuring measuring risk, which is a more complicated concept. And we care a lot about making sure that couples who are you know, using this information to make a really big decision really understand what the results mean. And that's why 100% of our results are physician ordered by an independent third party. You know, this isn't a, a pill farm. People are, are, are reviewing whether or not candidates are really going to benefit from our testing. And we also have a a genetic counselor who provides personalized results, personal walkthrough for every single report. And he or she is also available uh, synchronously for, for couples to you know, really dig into the details, the studies behind their results. Because, uh, yeah, I think that something that's kind of unfortunate about um, the way healthcare is practiced today is that I think that it's a little bit paternalistic. I mean, you'll sort of see some folks in healthcare who are see themselves more as uh, gatekeepers than really as uh, enablers. And I think that this generation of, of parents really wants to be proactive. They're planners, right? They didn't have children in their, their early 20s. They're probably having them in their late 20s, early 30s, mid 30s, late 30s. And being planners by nature, you don't want to take unnecessary risk. And that's exactly what work is trying to do is we're trying to say that, you know, your child's health doesn't have to be a genetic lottery where, okay, did you get lucky to not have, you know, all of these, these variants that could confer risk? It's actually, hey, identify risk early and take action. Whatever action that, you know, makes sense for your family. For some families, it's going to be lifestyle changes. It's going to be monitoring biometric is going to be nutrition. But, you know, for some families, it is going to be mitigation through IVF. And I don't think that there should be any uh, finger wagging about that. E everyone's individual decision about something as intimate and personal about as um, how they're going to have a child is really up to them. And I don't think it's up to, um, you know, someone else to decide how people choose to, to have children. So talking about mitigation, I mean, there's certainly antidotes out there about people getting back genetic tests and making big lifestyle changes. But on balance, how frequent is that? I mean, I'm guessing that the kinds of people who would go out and do something like Orchid are probably a lot more likely than the average person to conscientiously do that. But I was just wondering, how often do you think people will really make hard lifestyle changes to their, their diet or, you know, exercise routine or whatever, or, or, you know, try to get their family, I guess, really uh, in a better position for that? 
Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question because I sort of have two minds about it. So on the one hand, I, I sort of think that behavior change is extremely hard. And that's why you know doing genetic testing is, is great for, you know, for your future child, because getting people to lose weight, getting people to exercise, getting people to eat well is actually really, really hard. So if a couple or a parent can just say, hey, look, at birth, we're not going to predispose you to these conditions, right? Versus people who are at really high genetic risk are kind of having to play this uphill battle of, you know, it's really difficult to basically invest in, in those lifestyle changes. So I, I sort of have, have two minds about it. I think that at some level, you know, you can't force someone to make changes that they don't want to make. And that's, I think, what the uphill battle is. But I think that for people who are trying to optimize their health, then it's going to m- multiply their efforts. If you're invested in healthy aging and wanting to understand where your risk is, and it, it, some changes are, are easier than others, right? So sometimes, you know, losing 50 pounds, you know, maybe sounds a lot uh, more difficult than, you know, maybe just, you know, wearing an Apple watch and monitoring your, your AFib that way, right? It's sort of like passive monitoring sometimes is, a, is an e- easier intervention than drastically reducing your weight. So I think it really depends on the disease. It really depends on the couple. Um, really depends on the risk that they're trying to mitigate. So unfortunately for a disease like schizophrenia, there's there's really not much known about how to treat or, or mitigate that disease. But for something else like type 1 diabetes, I mean, just simply knowing that you are high risk gets you on a you know speedier diagnostic pathway, right? A lot of people, I've, I have you know personal friends who found out that they were diagnosed with uh, type 1 diabetes in their mid-30s. All of their teens, all of their 20s, they were extremely lethargic, just thought that was a normal part of life and just was you know misdiagnosed and found out far later than they should have what the actual root cause was. So I think that you know just understanding that risk early can sometimes just avoid a, a diagnostic odyssey to find out what the what the true cause is. Fortunately, it's, I, I hope that wasn't a non-answer, but I think that the answer is, is super variable depending on the disease, the individual, and uh, exactly what types of actions that that would be sort of seamless to, to integrate into their lives. So just just a one-time purchase to, to monitor biometrics as opposed to, okay, this is a sincere daily investment of, okay, I'm going to change you know my activity level or what I'm eating. That's a good point. Like more passive AFib monitoring is a much lighter lift than going on a, a low-salt diet or something. Yeah. So the dynamic range for polygenic risk scores for a number of phenotypes of interest is quite large and would certainly be actionable. Um, How does that look for children of two parents? Yeah, this question that you're asking was actually the entire motivation for the product because we had initially just started on, you know, let's just offer embryo reports to couples who are already going through IVF. And then there was just so much interest from, you know, a couple outside of IVF saying, you know, we have a, a sibling or a parent with schizophrenia. We're super afraid. We're just choosing not to have children because we don't know that there's that any mitigation is possible. And they didn't want to take the step of doing IVF without any sort of assurance or idea of, okay, how much could I actually mitigate? Uh, risk for this disease. So that's the entire motivation behind the couple report is to actually identify measure risk early and to show for a specific couple, because unfortunately, there's not, you know, one answer for, okay, this is a relative risk reduction that's possible for every couple. It's very, very specific to what are the genetics of the two people that are involved to be able to, to make that assessment. But that's exactly what's included in the couple report. It sort of tells you just red light, green light, are you at normal or elevated? Is your future child going to be at normal or elevated risk for any of these conditions? And then in addition to that, if elevated risk is identified in a future child, we show what the range of outcomes would be 
given you know a thousand simulations that we run our model of how how the couple's dna could recombine we show okay this is the 20th percentile this is the 80th percentile so we're not saying okay in, in a crazy world where you have a thousand embryos we know that that's not possible in, in a world where you, you know you produce between four and ten embryos which is pretty conventional right now for folks who are going through ivf what would sort of that lowest risk versus highest risk embryo be so that a couple has some idea of of what the what the range of risk for their for their children would be. i'm sure your audience is, is pretty technically sophisticated on the genetic side but i also find it really funny if you ask the average person you know how genetically similar are you and your siblings they'll give you really crazy answers first they'll say 100 percent, and then i'll say wait but then what are twins and then they'll say oh okay wait no 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 let me see so basically just you know just to you know for folks who don't know siblings are are, are uh, share 50 percent of the, the dna so you can sort of think that okay there is you know, necessarily going to be variance between you know the genetic risk for each of these embryos and we're just quantifying that so you sort of you, you know you can obviously see that where these risk scores and these simulations have, have been validated in using empirical data. So you can see a sibling who has a high PRS, what was the rate that they got a specific disease as opposed to uh, other siblings who have a lower PRS score, they get the disease at lower rates. That's sort of the entire point. It's just a statistical model of, okay, these variants are associated with, with higher rates of disease as opposed to these variants are associated with lower rates of the disease. The succinct answer to the question is the amount of risk reduction that's possible through embryo prioritization varies enormously between couples. It depends on the genetic architecture, so meaning the number of variants that are included in a polygenic risk score for a specific disease. So the entire point of the couple report is to give couples a concrete idea of, based on your specific genetics, based on the specific disease that you're concerned about, how much uh, mitigation, so how much of a risk reduction would be possible were you to, to elect to go through IVF at create embryos and prioritize the one that's at lowest risk. I guess another challenge in human genetics, I mean, this is something that we've run into at the, the CRO before, right, is human genetic samples tend to be overwhelmingly of European descent. Yeah. Right? And so the large data sets that are available for building polygenic risk scores tend to be incomplete. <laughs> so how does ORCID deal with that? And obviously, that's something that is changing over time. But, you know, I imagine for a lot of, of indications of interest, you don't have probably good weightings for global populations. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out. I mean, that's like one of the biggest tragedies, unfortunately, of genomics during this time, the fact that overwhelmingly the, the data sets just are uh, you know, predominantly European samples. And that means that the performance there is better than for other ancestries where there's you know less data available. So unfortunately, this is, of course, as you know, everyone understands, not a problem that ORCID can tackle alone. But I think what's really exciting is seeing the entire you know global genomics community getting behind this. There's sort of a large consortia who are spending you know millions, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars on making sure that we're aggregating and biobanking uh, more diverse samples. And that's obviously something that, that, that ORCU can support in part, but it's, it's something that the entire genetics community has to get around. And, you know, we're, you know, obviously, frankly, disappointed that to date that the, the sample set is so biased. But in terms of how, how we specifically can combat, we combat that, it's, it's primarily in software. So looking at techniques around local ancestry and friends where basically we can leverage the fact that there is, you know, shared haplotypes, so shared uh, genetic structure between ancestries in order to boost performance. There's, there's different techniques like that that we can use to um, you know make the scores as performant as possible given the limitations but we, we unfortunately can't be responsible for the uh, shortcomings of the entire genomics community but we're, we're 100 behind getting more diverse samples and that's something that's critical not just to, to our efforts but you know to making genomic medicine and precision medicine affect everyone's lives and not just one ancestry group it's really interesting i would imagine launching a company like this about which essentially so much sci-fi has been has been written but really the technology is now available and obviously one of the things that some of those novels explore is is uh, questions around access for example do you expect and obviously this is a will be a rapidly shifting landscape so the answer 
in the next few years may be quite different from the answer a decade from now. But do you anticipate something like this could be eventually covered by health insurance companies, by potentially uh, national health services and so on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that accessibility is, you know, the number one priority for Orchid. You know, we we want every couple to be able to have a healthy baby. That's the stated mission of the company. And I think that, you know, right now what's happening is that couples who are at high genetic risk have sometimes no mitigation option, right? Their their only mitigation option that's provided is, oh, you know, you should adopt a child or not have a child. And that's extremely sad and it shouldn't be that way. So we're building the tool so that every couple can have a healthy baby. So we're obviously doing that on the technology side, but on the accessibility side, that matters an an immense amount to us. Our impact is limited by, you know, unfortunately the people who can afford the technology and that's unfair. So we think that, you know, insurance companies, lawyers, everyone should be willing to to cover this because having a family should be a human right. Everyone should be able to, have a healthy child it shouldn't be the case that okay some people have to you know play the play the genetic lottery in order to just see okay are we gonna roll the dice and be lucky enough to have a healthy child or do we have the opportunity to actually assess risk up front and then mitigate it if, it, if it's available so we actually have a um low-cost application program that, that folks can apply to for people who aren't able to uh, afford the sticker price of the service. But, uh, you know, of course, we're advocating to make sure that, you know, every insurance company, every employer, every fertility benefits program offers our, our product because we think that every couple that stands to benefit from this should have the opportunity and shouldn't be about whether what their financial situation is. That, that shouldn't be the limiting factor for, for their ability to get on board. I think that, unfortunately, it's kind of sad in the U.S. We're in this situation where there's not uniform IVF coverage, right? So 15% of folks are infertile. So, you know, we think that IVF has this really incredible history where, you know, since 1990s, IVF has been preventing the diseases, uh, the monogenic diseases that gene therapy will only one day treat for only $20,000 a case. And you look at, you know, stuff like Luxterna, that, that, that treats, treats a very rare degenerative eye condition that through gene therapy it costs $840,000 per eye. So we're talking about $2 million compared to $20,000 if you're able to go through IVF. So IVF has this is this really incredible technology you know that allows people with uh, infertility to have babies as well as people who want to uh, mitigate disease to to have healthy babies and I think that it's uh, really unfortunate that in the U.S. we don't prioritize building families as much as we do in other countries. So if you look at another at other countries like Israel, they have free IVF until you're 44. You know that's just that's just a different model than the U.S. where it's sort of like okay, well you know some people who who have the financial means are able to afford IVF and you know we don't mandate that it's covered by insurance and I think that 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 is something just forecasting, I think, will change because I think the demand for these services is already on the rise because, you know, people are choosing to have families later. And um, that naturally means there's going to be a higher rate of, of folks who need IVF. And I think that um, the other reason, you know, companies like Orchid, where it's not just about infertility, it's also about disease mitigation. There's just going to be a rising demand for, for coverage for this. And I think that that's something that every American deserves. I think that's something globally that folks deserve. Yeah, it's it's unfortunately, again, not, not up to Orchid what uh, insurance companies and other folks decide. But, you know, from our perspective, having a baby is, is one of the most consequential uh, moments in your life. And being able to mitigate disease risk is obviously a really important part of that picture. Outside of insurance companies, there are a lot of really exciting technologies that are coming down the pipe to make IVF more accessible on the automation side. So I don't want it to sound too much like a dream, but sort of the, the idea of making IVF a little bit more like LASIK, where there's sort of a repeatable process and performance ranges that are expected versus right now, sort of the situation is that there's there's certain centers of excellence where they've had thousands and thousands of cycles and they've been able to do enough reps where their performance is really solid, as opposed to sometimes these smaller clinics who just don't have the volume, their staff doesn't have the training, being able to use automation to level the playing field so that you know more, more centers can serve more folks at uh, you know, a lower price point. 
you know, fortunately, I think there are some companies playing in that space who um, should also be soon will be able to alleviate some strain on demand there. But it's, it's going to be a process just like any other technology curve. But, you know, if you look look at Tesla, they started out with a you know, super expensive sports car. And then now, you know, several years later, they've come out with many other uh, product lines that are sort of increasingly more affordable and address the audience beyond the sports car en- enthusiast. Orchid is, of course, focused on disease risk mitigation, which, you know, I, I think for most people, maybe, maybe outside a few, you know, finger wagging bioethicists and things, most people are, you know, would, would totally be on board with that. But of course, the technology, you know, can be used to look at, at weight, height, IQ, right? I mean, things that parents would want for their own kids, but where, you know, obviously, there there, there are other concerns around Given that the technologies out there, you know, genotyping is relatively inexpensive and so on, you know, not, not that ORCID would do it, but basically, I mean, do you think that is 30 years from now that that will basically be either, either the norm or outlawed one or the other, right? It seems like one of those things like that the tech enables it. Obviously, individual parents are going to want, uh, many individual parents are going to want it for their own kids. Will that genie be out of the bottle? Yeah, I mean, so in terms of ORCID, you know, we're squarely focused on disease mitigation, and we think that that provides an enormous amount of value to parents, specifically if you're looking at these highest percentiles of, you know, 98th, 99th percentile of a distribution, you're at 2x, 3x, 4x, 5x, sometimes 10x the risk for a disease. I think that that's merited, right? It's sort of if if you're in such a high risk category and you want to move your child into normal risk, I think that, you know, society and clinicians are sympathetic to that, and it's sort of you know, to be honest, we're, we're already doing that for a disease with different genetic architecture. We're already doing that for folks with cystic fibrosis and you know other conditions where it's been identified that the couple is high risk, and now let, let's mitigate it via uh, embryo prioritization. So I think that that's something that's sort of squarely where the science is solid. And I think that for a lot of these other traits, like things like height or intelligence, I mean, there's been a bunch of papers published that sort of just show that there's just not very much variance, right? You're talking about something like two centimeters for height, and you're talking about something like, I don't know, less than three IQ points, maybe two IQ points for IQ. So I think that that's just not really a significant difference. It's not really merited to try and uh, prioritize your embryos based on something that small, as opposed to if you're talking about, okay, you know, our child is going to be a three X risk for schizophrenia as opposed to one X risk. Like, and, you know, we have, a, we've also have a documented family history. I think that that's, you know, a much clearer indication for a, a positive result that's, that's going to occur as opposed to for something sort of frivolous, these sort of sorts of traits that society clinicians are just not going to be on board with that type of use of the technology. So I think that, you know, there's always going to be heart surgery and there's going to be plastic surgery, right? So orchid is squarely in the heart surgery range. I don't know what, what other companies are going to do. Maybe they're going to be in the plastic surgery or something something even even shadier than, than plastic surgery type of range. But fortunately, we have regulations like Gina. So what Gina does is it makes it so that you can't discriminate someone based on their genetics. So I think we, we already have sort of a, a regulatory and legal background behind, okay, if there's sufficient damage that could be caused by use of a certain technology. So for example, which, you know, I think we all agree that, you know, you shouldn't be discriminated from, you know, your insurance or your job based on your genetics. So in order to ensure that, you know, we, we pass something like Gina. So I think that similarly, if there's sufficient interest or sufficient number of, I guess, bad actors in, in this space, I think that, you know, regulation will emerge to to combat that. I think that what, what's really important is to just stay close to the science, stay focused to where predictions are actually meaningful and affect quality of life. And, you know, that's what ORCID's focus is. And, you know, whether or not other players will choose to be less, you know, conservative, humble, and honest about where the state of the science is, I, I can't really, um, yeah, I don't know. I can't really forecast what, what other what other folks will do. Hey, thank you. 
I think your path has been uh, especially interesting, right? I mean, I, I think anyone who's kind of gutsy enough to skip the traditional route, especially when the Teal Fellowship was quite early, is you know someone I, I'm keen to talk to you and and you know learn about their thought process. Yeah, can you tell us about I guess from you know from from the beginning uh, what what brought you here? Sure. Yeah, I think it's I sort of have a, you know, maybe weird path. I think when I was in high school, and I was applying to to colleges and also to um, the fellowship, everyone thought it was a crazy idea, and couldn't be making a worse decision than to do the fellowship. And then after I did the fellowship, you know, I chose to go to college. And then again, everyone said, this is crazy. Stop working on, on this company that's going super well and instead to choose to go to college. So I think basically what I've gotten used to throughout my entire life is doing things even when other people think it's a, a terrible idea. Because I think that at the end of the day, it just comes down to um, how, how you're feeling specifically at the time. Sometimes on average, a decision makes sense for the average person, but you're not an average person, right? You're a specific person and you have specific goals. So for me, the fellowship couldn't have been a better decision. I mean, I learned super early what it takes to start a company, to build a product, to raise money, to build a team, to sell into healthcare. You know, I would have wasted probably more than a decade doing, I don't know, working in consulting or working at, you know, 10 other different types of companies to get that same experience in, you know, just a few years and, you know, super early in my life. Uh, and I think that that totally changed the trajectory of what I was interested in at Stanford. So I spent almost 100% of my time doing doing research because, you know, I was like, what's what's really exciting about being an academic institution is being at the cutting edge of, of research. This is something that you don't have the opportunity to do anywhere else. These are data sets that, you know, sometimes are academic only access that you don't, you aren't able to access commercially. So basically my, my time during the TL Fellowship completely changed the trajectory of, of, of my life, specifically even what I, what I chose to focus on while I was at Stanford. And then I think after Stanford, the decision to start ORCID was actually, I guess, premeditated almost a decade prior. So when I first started the, the Teal Fellowship, I actually really wanted to work on something similar to what ORCID was doing, but I just didn't feel like I had, you know, spent enough time in the industry, spent enough time in the research to really be able to to take it head on. So I think the other thing that I really learned from the fellowship is that starting a company is extremely hard and you can only do it if if it's something that you, your, your heart is really in, where um, this is something that you want to be your, your life's work. This is something, this is a hill that you want to die on. And I always knew that it was the you know, reproductive tech space. So that's where my heart was. I think I felt really fortunate to be able to, coming on a decade later, be actually in the position where I felt like I'd had the the requisite experience to actually you know, go go do my life's work, go do the thing that um, my heart was truly in, which is what Orchid's doing now. I mean, I, I don't think that there's any higher calling for me than helping uh, couples to have healthy babies and bringing the, t- the, the team together on both the computational chemistry and molecular bio side in order to, to fulfill that vision. And I think that this is a particularly sensitive space where it's not just about does this get done, but does this get done right, right? That's really the key, key component. And I think that that's like o- operating at the highest, uh, you know, scientific and ethical integrity is really core to, to Orchid's mission. And I think that unfortunately, it's, it's, it's not core to other companies. And I think that that's specifically, it, it's, it's funny, I think that some people see that as, oh, it's like an, an extra thing to take on. But I think that it's actually going to be the, the, the company that's going to be most successful in this, in this space, by definition, in, in my opinion, has to have both the um, scientific and ethics really close to their heart, because I think that that's, that's ultimately what the public cares the most about. You know, of, of course, everyone's sympathetic to the idea of mitigating disease risk, but is this a company that you can truly trust that is really conservative and humble and thoughtful about, you know, the actual deployment of these polygenic risk scores? You know, we know, we know the science is there, but how do you actually communicate that science in a way that's comfortable and credible both to physicians and patients? And, you know, that's really, really uh, core to our mission. And 
so I guess surprisingly, I think is going to end up bearing out as, as a strength because I think that, that that's ultimately what the public and physicians care the most about is not trying to take the science too far, focusing on where do we really know that we can mitigate risk and just being open and honest about the limitations of things that we, we can't predict yet. Just, just that, that couples are aware of, okay, if you have normal genetic risk, that doesn't mean you have a guarantee of a healthy life. It means your your genetics aren't predisposing you to a condition. And you know, similarly, if you have elevated genetic risk, that's not a guarantee. It's not a, it's not a diagnosis of disease. It means that you know, you're twofold, threefold, fourfold, fivefold, depending on the disease, elevated predisposition or elevated likelihood of, of developing it. And I think that that's just super important to drill into couples' minds because you know, these are big decisions and they should be properly informed about what the results actually mean. I guess this is the role of genetic counselors, but most people seem not to have a very intuitive interpretation of risk. Right? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, it, it, genetic counselors are amazing and incredible, but I don't think it's actually just about them. I think it's also about not cutting corners, not saying, hey, we're going to do genotyping instead of whole genome sequencing. It's about really characterizing the molecular biology of, okay, what's the what's the fidelity? How much coverage do we have for this particular region? How much does this region contribute to the score? So I think it's, you know, it's everything from the chemistry to, okay, how are you vetting the specific PRSs that you're using? Which ancestry population, you know, are you using? How, how large was the training set? How large was the validation set? How many studies have actually reproduced this PRS score? What is the functional validation for the variance in the score? So I think that it's it's actually full stack. I think that you know developing a product that really meaningfully estimates risk is actually a full stack problem. I would not say that our plan is to just shove this to genetic counselors. Hey, we know these results are super complicated, trying to explain to them. Like we're full stack focused on everything from evaluating the, the variance to building the appropriate models to actually designing the reports. Um, and then of course, you know, genetic counselors and physicians are, are a piece of it, but I wouldn't say that they're being thrown a problem that hasn't been really thoroughly investigated. And we've already taken it through with a very fine tooth comb to make sure what they're getting is the most important insights to to communicate to the couple. Great. So going back to the Teal Fellowship, I asked the same question of, of Delian, but I would love to hear your response. What do you think differentiates the participants who thrived from those who didn't? I actually think that this delineation of thrive versus not thrive is actually kind of unfair, right? So if, if someone, quote unquote, didn't thrive over a two-year period, I think that that's not really the right time scale to evaluate what the impact of the experience was for them. So you can think about like something like a PhD, right? You're sort of, you know, at least in the US, it's about five years and you're given a very loose mandate of what you need to do and a lot of ambiguity and a lot of figuring it out yourself. Sometimes people really struggle, really, really, truly struggle their PhD. They need a lot of handholding and they need a lot of support from their PI, but then they come out of it and they're incredible postdocs or they're incredible junior faculty. And it was that 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 experience, those five years of struggling, failing, and completely languishing, and you know maybe getting nothing done for two years, that uh, actually allowed them to to build this muscle that didn't exist for them before. So I guess to to give a more concrete answer, I think that sometimes the people who quote unquote languish or didn't thrive for those two years might actually have the most outsized impact later because they basically realized, hey, I was on the super tracked path before where there wasn't amb- any ambiguity. You know, I was always just trying to get the, you know, the highest SAT score, the highest grade or something very specific and concrete. And then when I was thrown into an environment where I had to, you know, define my own objectives that that was disorienting for them. So maybe for for those people, they actually benefited the most. Maybe they're actually thriving the most from actually having gone through that exercise. But I think, you know, if you want to look at like very conventional measures of success or thriving, I think that people who had already had spent a lot of unstructured time and knew how to structure it and knew how to build software products or something where you have a very short time scale for it to be successful, right? I mean, 
the iteration time for a software product is much shorter than a duration time for a biotech product where you have to do clinical trials, where you have to get IRBs on board. It's just, it's just very different. I think that the characteristics of someone who can be successful on a two-year timescale is probably someone who's just working on a small software product who's already had experience with shipping those types of products to, to users before. But I think that that's basically a very, a very narrow and uh, incorrect way of thinking about what the actual value of the experience is. I think that the actual value of the experience is just taking anyone who's just you know, high potential, really ambitious, and then forcing them to do the hard work of figuring out, okay, you can do anything you want. How should you actually spend your time? And I think that it's, it's, it's funny. People who are 50, 60, 40, any decade actually haven't done that. They haven't actually done the exercise of, okay, if I could work on anything, what should I actually working, work on? What is actually the best use of my time? What's actually the best for society? What is like the, the highest leverage thing I could do? And I think that regardless of who you are and regardless of the, the amount of time that you spend suffering with that question, it's actually super valuable. But maybe that was too philosophical of a response that you were looking for. What did, what did Delian say? So the crux of it was essentially the same, the ownership they took in an unstructured environment. The interpretation of that was, was, was quite different, right? So to what extent do you think something like the Teal Fellowship could scale? Should something like that scale? Should other philanthropists come in and offer kids you know, $100,000 to go do something other than college? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, honestly, if you're going to ask me where should philanthropy direct, be directed, I think that it should be directed to reproductive technology. I think that reproductive technology is one of the most underhyped, underfunded spaces. So historically, IVF has actually never been funded by the, by the government. Any human embryo research is funded by the by the government. So I think that yeah, if I were if I were to be able to just direct a huge amount of philanthropic funds, I would say that there's a huge amount of work to be done in uh, automating IVF and making it more accessible to everyone. There's, there's a huge amount of work that could be done on cutting edge technology like something like IVG, in vitro gametogenesis. So the idea of taking a skin cell, taking a fibroblast and being able to direct it not only to become a stem cell, but after it's been directed to a stem cell, which has sort of already been discovered through Yamanaka factors, the ability to take uh, an arbitrary cell and convert it into a stem cell. But actually, once you have that stem cell, can you go and convert that into an egg cell, right? So basically the, the biggest limitation for you know women's fertility window is the fact that egg quality declines with age. So if you're able to make IVF fully non-invasive, and create an arbitrary um, number of eggs at any age that would really expand the number of women and couples that could conceive. And for some of these other conditions where specific couple, it's very rare for them to be able to have a, a child that's low risk, being able to create more embryos for, for that, more eggs and more embryos for that couple allows them to have a better chance of being able to mitigate risk. So I think uh, IVG, for example, so the ability to create a egg cell from a skin cell is something that scientists are working on. There's probably about five labs in the world that are doing work related to that. And I think that they're underfunded. I would love it if they got, you know, more funding. I think that if you look at premature births, you know, we made an enormous amount of progress with incubators, right? So there's this idea of mechanical ventilation being able to support, you know, inf infants that are born at up to 30 weeks. And previously, all of those infants died. But now we're reaching this limit of, you know, 28 to 25 weeks where the you know, 80% of these 200,000 plus premature births that are occurring in, in the U.S. at this 25 to 28 eight week mark are, are all dying because they can't survive outside of the womb. And why why aren't we working on an extra uterine system to support those those premature babies, right? We basically reached this limit of, of our technology. And, you know, why aren't we working on new types of incubators that could support those premature infants? That's the type of technology that I would love to see. I love all, all this work that's going into pharma, like developing new, new drugs for folks. Gene therapy is really exciting. A lot of this research is super exciting, but if, if, they, if I were to identify a single area that's underfunded where there's a huge outsized impact for humanity and for the next generation, I would say it's reproductive technology. So 
being able to help more couples have healthy babies that currently are just stuck because of essentially being unlucky, right? A premature birth. I mean, we don't know what causes it. It's just unlucky that that child doesn't get to live because, you know, we aren't able to help it thrive outside of the, the uterine environment. So I, I'd love to see more people uh, working on that. And there are, there are scientists who are... Um, who want to, but they're just they're just underfunded because uh, you know for whatever reason we've decided to, to, to direct our funds uh, elsewhere. So I guess I don't know maybe that wasn't really quite what you're you're trying to get at, but uh, that's that's the stuff that I'm most excited about. Great. Well, thank you so much for for coming on today, Nora. It was it was really interesting. Yeah, it was awesome to to meet Grant. You're clearly very deep on the science. You really understand what we're working on. So it's always great to uh, talk to someone so well versed in, in genetics and in an even more niche topic of polygenic risk score. So it was really great to get a chance to, to chat with you. Likewise.